Chapter Ten of Chemical Phenomena in Life by Frederick Chopek. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chemical Adaptation and Inheritance. Our review of the chemical phenomena in life would not be complete unless we had a last glance at the chemical phenomena of variation, adaptation, and inheritance in living beings. The investigation of these phenomena lies at present so much within the territory of morphology that one scarcely thinks of the importance of chemical work in this department of biological science. Chemical methods, however, are here of particularly great interest. Morphology, being a comparative science, draws attention only to the results of variation and adaptation. Chemistry has to show the whole course of phenomena, not only the results, and it has to consider the influence of time on phenomena to determine the minima and maxima in the course of reactions, and to introduce the time factor into all these investigations. In chemistry, therefore, variation can be observed in the course of phenomena, as well as in the final results. Since alterations and variations in the course of physiological actions can generally be traced back to the influences of certain factors, chemical methods open up an immensely wide outlook. At present, chemical investigations into variation and inheritance unfortunately show so many gaps that our report cannot be but a provisional one, and it must rather contain suggestion for fresh experimental work than material already worked out. The kinds of variations which morphologists distinguish as fluctuating variation and mutation are exactly repeated in the chemical properties of living organisms. The law of fluctuating variation discovered by Coutelet is expressed by the statement that the average values are the most frequently recurring ones. The individuals showing a certain characteristic, more or less marked, are rarer, the greater the divergence from the average value or average size of the characteristic. This law, which can so regularly be shown by measuring the length, weight, or volume of an organ of plants or animals in a great number of individuals, supplies exact returns in chemical variations. De Vries gives a report of the result of an examination of 40,000 sugar beets with regard to their content of cane sugar. From the curve given by de Vries, we immediately recognize the fundamental law. The average quantity of about 16% of sugar was found in nearly 7,000 beetroots, 12% sugar in only 340 roots, 19% in only 5. It is true that such research work has not been carried out very often, but the few experiments which have already been made render it most probable that Kittelet's law holds for chemical properties as well as for morphological characteristics. It would be comparatively easy to examine the amount of acid contained in leaves, the amount of starch or of protein which is contained in one individual in a great number of cases, in order to confirm the results mentioned above. No research work at all has been done to determine the velocity of chemical processes or reactions in a great number of single individuals. Data, without any difficulty, could be worked out on the velocity at which starch or protein disappear from germinating seeds, or on the intensity of respiration in many individuals which live under exactly the same conditions. It is difficult to say what results would be thus obtained. In any case, such research work is highly desirable. The second kind of variation takes place suddenly, eruption-like, and culminates in the production in single individuals of quite different characteristics which are markedly inheritable. Since de Vries' famous book on these phenomena, we call such variations mutations. Chemical mutations are widely spread and well known. 
in horticulture and agriculture many new mutations which were kept on account of their valuable chemical properties have in the course of time been isolated fruits containing an extraordinary quantity of sugar or of peculiar aroma and taste or corn containing a considerable quantity of starch are examples of such sudden chemical variation doubtless to these chemical mutations may be assigned all the results which were obtained in morphological mutations but even here it is unknown whether mutations occur in the velocity of reactions or vital processes in single individuals out of a great number of plants or animals and whether such variations are well fixed and inheritable well worthy of exact examination would be further the question how chemical variation works in hybrids it is well known that the progeny obtained by crossing two species of animals or plants in many cases follow the rule that only half of the progeny remain of hybrid character but the other half return to the parental types this law is the famous mendel's law up to our days we do not know whether chemical characteristics may be mendel too it is likely to be so in many cases and could without difficulty be confirmed at least in a number of experiments if chemical mendelism could be discovered it would be of great interest because it lies in the nature of mendelian characteristics that they are based on qualities of the nuclei of the sexual cells a further type of variation is known as atavism in the formation of a certain characteristic some individuals of the progeny return to the stage of this characteristic in the ancestors there is no doubt that chemical atavism will frequently be found in connection with morphological atavism we need only think of the reappearing characteristic of the uncultivated ancestors of our fruit trees but it is not yet known whether such chemical atavisms can reappear without being accompanied by morphological atavism finally we have to turn our attention to the variations which are caused by external influences botanists well know that the size and thickness of leaves depend upon the intensity of the sunlight in which they have grown especially the intensity of light but also the degree of moisture in the air gravity mechanical and chemical influences cause very remarkable alterations in the morphological characteristics of plants at the same time chemical alterations must take place and we see at last from all the research work which has been carried out in that domain that the variation is not merely a morphological one but is also chemical one must feel it to be a great gap in biological work that chemical properties in their dependence on the physical and chemical influences of their surroundings have not yet been investigated for themselves alone but a number of facts show even now that chemical variation depends on the influence of environment and that it shows a similar purposive tendency towards adaptation to the environment as is known in morphological characteristics and variations the oil seeds of the plants of the flora of our country always contain fat which is liquid at temperatures of above ten to twenty degrees celsius and becomes solid at a few degrees above zero tropical plants very frequently contain fat which melts only at a temperature above thirty degrees and is solid at an average european temperature this difference is likely to be connected with the temperature in which the plants live another phenomenon of the same kind is the rule in the production of enzymes in moulds no amylolytic enzyme is produced unless these fungi grow on culture medium containing starch and the common grey-green mould penicillium glaucum produces an enzyme which destroys wood substance when it grows upon wood but never when it grows on other substrata 
For the formative action of chemical and physical influences on the morphological qualities of organisms, the term morphoses has been introduced. In an analogous manner, we can name the chemical alterations provoked by these influences in plants and animals chemoses. Morphoses are to be considered as reactions of the living organism to external stimuli. They belong to the physiology of stimuli, and we cannot but assume that they differ from tropisms and other primitive forms of reactions only in their complexity. Chemoses must be considered as reactions of the living organism in the same way, and all that is known about morphological reactions must be assigned to these reaction phenomena. Biologists are nowadays inclined to explain the phenomena of adaptation in plants and animals by the supposition that the hereditary adapted forms took their origin from transitory morphoses, which often do not last longer than the time during which the external stimulus is acting on the organism. In such a way may, for instance, be understood the origin of dorsiventrality in plants. A branch of ivy develops its rootlets only on the shade side and turns its leaves all to the sun side. If we turn the branch by 180 degrees and fix it in this new position, it changes its morphological properties entirely, corresponding to the new conditions. The old rootlets shrink and fall, but new climbing roots are formed on the side which is now turned away from the light. The dorsal ventrality is, as we see, not fixed. A branch of a pine tree, when turned by 180 degrees, behaves quite differently. The old part does not change its character, and in spite of the unnatural position, the leaves remain without any reaction. But when in the following spring the branch continues its growth, the new part of the branch corresponds in its formation exactly to the new position. We see that a reaction could not be carried out in the adult part of the branch, but the characteristics of this part were not transferred to the new part. The latter behaves according to its real-life conditions. Again, the thallus of a liverwort, such as Marchantia, shows differences. If a young gemma of the moss is exposed to light in a certain position, the lighted side is destined to be the upper surface forever, and the opposite side to be forever the root-producing undersurface. Nothing can change this. Such a case corresponds to adaptation. It is strictly hereditary, and must be called a purposive reaction, because the proper tissues develop on both the light side and the undersurface. We may be sure that thorough investigation of chemical phenomena in life will certainly disclose analogies. Most probably, the self-steerage in the production of enzymes belongs to a series of such phenomena. On the other hand, the above-mentioned formation in tropical plants of fats of a high melting point may be called a perfect chemical adaptation. Phenomena of inheritance of chemical properties are as well known as those of hereditary morphological properties. We know only how far morphological and chemical properties are inheritable together, and how far chemical properties separately are hereditary. Nevertheless, examples of chemical varieties show that sometimes only one chemical characteristic varies and no other. The bitter almond shows no difference from the sweet variety of almond, but by the presence of amygdalin. This case of heredity depends upon fecundation processes. Since the progeny of bitter or sweet almonds, respectively, invariably show their peculiar characteristic. Consequently, the characteristic of producing amygdalin depends on the nuclei of the sexual cells. Generally, we speak of heredity only when sexual processes are involved, 
and the properties of one generation are transferred to the following generations. In plants, however, it is possible to take the conception of heredity in a wider sense. Sensu stricto, a sexual cell with its properties, is a part of the parental organism which is separated from the latter and is beginning an independent life. For heredity, I think we must not lay too much stress upon this circumstance, and it does not matter whether the transferring of parental properties takes place among cells which remain connected or not. When in a growing branch the young part acquires its properties from the adult part, this process is done by cell cleavage, each cell transferring its characteristics to its daughter cells. We may consequently here also speak of the phenomena of inheritance, and we shall distinguish them as asexual inheritance. The term inheritance implies that the transferring of characteristics takes place continually from generation to generation but it is not necessary for the characteristics to be apparent. Hybrids often do not show their characteristics in an intermediate form between the parental forms, but entirely resemble in a certain respect one of their parents. Mendel showed that in the second generation the hidden characteristic of the other parent becomes manifest in 25% of the descendants, so it must have been latent in the first generation. Such cases of heredity we call discontinuous heredity, continual manifestation of characteristics, continuous heredity. Heredity is far from being an absolutely sharp and marked conception. Phenomena of typical sexual inheritance are connected by an innumerable range of intermediate stages with the phenomena which we call typically transitory inductions. One could even think that inheritance represents only the limit of longeval induction, of which we cannot recognize the end because the duration of our time of observation is too short. If we could follow up millions of generations, if we could have the age of an eternal being, we might find the phenomena of variation more striking than the phenomena of inheritance. The best materials with which it is possible to observe a great number of generations in a few weeks are microbes and bacteria. There is one case known which illustrates the conception of inheritance most instructively. The Bacillus prodigiosus is a microbe which, under normal conditions, is very noteworthy because of its production of a scarlet coloring matter. When this bacterium is cultivated at a temperature of 30 to 35 degrees, it gradually loses its color. The interesting fact is now that the property of being colorless remains when the microbe is again cultivated at the ordinary temperature of 18 degrees. One would feel inclined to suppose that it had lost its property of producing the red pigment by the influence of heat. The loss is undoubtedly hereditary, for many generations are formed under normal temperature conditions which are absolutely without any red hue. But after a certain number of generations, which may be many thousands, the red hue returns, and the bacterium regains its former appearance. Such phenomena seem to be not very rare. If we were beings of quite short duration of life, we would perhaps believe that the loss of red pigment in these bacteria was real inheritance. Since we can prove that after a great number of generations the former property returns, we call that pseudo-inheritance. But we must bear in mind that there is no sharp distinction between pseudo-inheritance and real inheritance. The latter can only be considered as a pseudo-inheritance which lasts for an infinitely great number of generations. Chemical phenomena in this territory will certainly be discovered, and perhaps will contribute much towards making these difficult questions clearer. 
Phylogenetic investigations still contain many more interesting chemical questions than we could touch on in our short discussion. Well worth consideration is the question whether the so-called biogenetical law of Hockel extends to chemical phenomena. We know that the embryos of higher animals show considerable morphological resemblances to lower animals, and so it is in plants. The first stages of development in mosses resemble algae. The first development of ferns reminds us very strongly of liverworts. These facts are so general that they have been summarized in the rule that the development of the individual organism, or the ontogeny, represents a short recapitulation of the phylogeny. This law is hitherto only based upon morphological facts. Since morphological phenomena are always accompanied by chemical analogies, we may suppose that the law of biogenetics can be applied also to chemical phenomena in life. Many reasons can be produced to support this idea. The primitive groups of higher plants, such as mosses and ferns and gymnosperms, do not contain by far as many different substances as the phanerogams. All the numerous glycosides, most alkaloids, and the bitter principles occur in the phanerogamic groups. The lowest plants of the classes algae and fungi, in general, contain only the widespread organic compounds, such as fats, carbohydrates, or proteids. The lichens, a highly developed symbiotic group of fungi, alone contain a greater number of specific organic compounds belonging to the class of benzene derivatives. The lowest algae and fungi, as well as the bacteria, have essentially the chemical composition of protoplasm. In ontology, we see that the young tissues of higher plants do not yet contain the different chemical compounds which are found in the adult plants. Even here, the chemical composition of the youngest cells is essentially that of protoplasm. End of chapter 10 End of Chemical Phenomena in Life by Frederick Chopik.